so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dean and Sarah, who's the lead pastor of City Church and the author of a recent book entitled Pure, While the Bible's Plan for Sexuality Isn't Outdated, Irrelevant, or Oppressive. Today, we talk about Christian culture and the nature of the biblical sexual ethic. Dean is the founding and lead pastor of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida, where he leads in preaching and vision. He holds an MA in Theological Studies from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and is currently pursuing a DMIN from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's a member of Baptist 21 and serves in various capacities throughout the Southern Baptist Convention. He's the author of several books, including The Unsaved Christian, Getting Over Yourself, and The Marks of a Disciple. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dean, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell listeners a little bit about your background, your journey into ministry, and what led you all to plant City Church in Tallahassee? Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on the podcast, Jason. I always enjoy spending time with you in person or uh, via podcast. I am pastoring in my hometown of Tallahassee, Florida, which is pretty unique, I think. Uh, And I'm really grateful for that opportunity because I get a chance to minister to a lot of people I grew up with and their parents. And I get to do a lot of weddings and people I went to high school with and and just neat things like that. My background is that I was raised mainline Protestant in a very good family that went to church every Sunday. But the church we went to, really nice people, really good folks. uh, But there are some remnant mainline Protestant churches, of course. uh, But the one I grew up in, I never actually was told I was a sinner who needed a savior. You know, I was told to be loving. You know, if you talked about the Old Testament, it'd be to you know be brave like David, and you know make sure you don't run from God like Jonah, and certain things like that. But no one ever actually told me I needed Christ uh, for anything more than you know, he was presented as a inspirational figure, someone who loved the poor, who loved well. Uh, definitely aspects about Jesus, but not his primary purpose of existence. Right? He's come to seek and save those who are lost. Uh, so I was at a fellowship of Christian athletes retreat when I was thirteen years old. And I heard the gospel for the first time. I didn't know what the gospel meant. I thought it was kind of music, you know, like gospel music, like a genre. Uh, but someone told me, the pastor told me, I felt like he was looking right at me. It was a large room full of students, middle school students, about told me about Jesus and my need for him, to, uh, that he died for my sins. But he really presented the gospel to me, and I needed to trust in Christ as the only way of salvation. And I did that day. 
And um, when people say things like, when are you called to ministry? I'm not exactly sure when all that happened in my life. But if you'd have asked me in early high school, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have told you a pastor in Tallahassee. And a lot of the reason for that was that I knew that the community I came from and a lot of my friends are in the same boat that I was in. I call them unsaved Christians. People who, if you ask them if they're a Christian, they would say yes, but their reason for believing that has nothing actually to do with saving faith. That was me, and that's where I live. And so that's uh, the story in terms of ministry. My wife and I have been married for 18 years and have three kids uh, who are 15, uh, 12, and almost about to be eight. Boy, boy, girl. So yeah, we're really enjoying life in Tallahassee and thankful to be a part of City Church, uh, the church that I pastor, that we love so much. If I wasn't the pastor, we'd still want to be members here you know, and live in the community. So it's, 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 a, it's a special time for us. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about you and your ministry and specifically of City Church is there's just a love for the local church. Uh, I probably came from a very similar background in some sense, even though it wasn't mainline Protestant. Um, I grew up kind of part of church culture. I was around Christians. I thought I was a Christian. I walked the aisle when I was eight years old. I had no concept of sin. I had really no concept of who Jesus was, what he did for me. And it wasn't really until I was 18 years old that I actually became a believer. Um, And so, but I was exposed to a lot of the subculture within Christianity. One of the reasons that I was excited to have you on the podcast is it's kind of a fitting bookend to some of the conversations we've been having. Earlier this year, we had Carl Truman on the podcast talking about the rise of the sexual revolution and how our culture kind of out there became obsessed with sexuality. And kind of a fitting book into that is having you on the podcast talking about the nature of sexuality even within the church. I know within the church, we know a lot of the subcultures and things, especially with purity culture. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of what led to this point where within the church, we're talking about issues of pornography, we're talking about issues of sexuality, we're having a lot of these questions uh, from a more pastoral perspective? Yeah, so part of coming up of age as a Christian after my conversion in the 90s was I got immersed into what's called as the True Love Waits movement. Uh, today, people look back and call it purity culture. We didn't call it that then. That's a, a name in retrospect that's been given. We just called it True Love Waits. And so much of the gatherings and the conversation was around this whole idea of what they called saving yourself. Uh, so the entire really programming, messaging was all in the context of, Jason, you don't want to be the one you know, who gets to your honeymoon and you're not the one who has waited you know, to be intimate. So you don't want to be the one that kind of messes everything up. Uh, based on that. Uh, Rather, I wish the messaging would have been telling us about God's design uh, for human sexuality and why it matters and why it's about a love for God and a love for people and and why it's it's a part of following Jesus. Uh, So I think the messaging was just really off base. I don't think they meant any harm by it. I think they're being sincere, uh, but it created really kind of two camps as a result of it. One was a very pharisaical camp. I knew someone in college who was uh, dating a really great guy who was a believer, like serious about Jesus. And they were pretty serious and were about to get engaged. And they had some serious conversations about kind of their history and their past. And he informed her when he was like 16 uh, that he was intimate with the girl he was dating a a couple different times. Uh, Not to be TMI there, but that was kind of the the, the conversation. And she broke up with him because you you can break up whoever you want. You're not bound to a person you're dating, obviously. But in her eyes, the reason why she did that, she said, was because she had saved herself, I'm doing air quotes, saved herself. uh, So therefore, she deserves someone who had done the same thing. Now, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the same way, the other side of that coin is it created a very shame and guilt culture. 
uh, to where those who maybe had partners intimately, you know, before they were married, if it was a girlfriend, if it was a hookup culture, whatever it could have been, then they felt like they were the the terms would be used were things like damaged goods. And that they did not deserve to get married one day. They never have a Christian spouse or I've already messed up. I'm already the one that has you know, violated all this. And so why does it matter? I can still keep doing it. I've already made the mistake. That is also not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the result of this has been looking back on that era rather than saying, hey, we learned some good things. They taught us purity principles, things that matter. Rather, we're looking back going, wow, talk about falling short. We created Pharisees and created guilt and shame. Uh, so I, I think now what churches are doing as a result is just not talking about it at all because we want to avoid those two extremes. Uh, so instead, now it's kind of this taboo topic in the church. And if you do talk about it, it's like a once a year kind of specialized, you know, kind of programming night. And, and a lot of disclaimers are given and kind of apologetic is given uh, rather than going, hey, here's what God says. Here's what God has designed for us. And, and I think that where it comes from, that 90s movement, was a lot of these were the children of people who grew up in the 60s and 70s and had became believers since then. So the 60s and 70s era was a lot of kind of free love and make love, not war, and uh, where sex was a form of expression you know, in the larger culture. And I think a lot of them didn't want their kids to experience the same things that they experienced, looking back with regret, which praise God uh, for parents wanting to make that big transition in their lives, that big shift. But the swung a little too far to where the approach was more guilt and shame and pharisaical on the other end, rather than actually highlighting God's design and God's glory and what it looks like for our good. Yeah, that's one of the things that, especially as I look at culture, I keep always coming back to the a picture of the old pendulum clocks. I remember growing up, we always had this clock in the in the house, and it, you had this pendulum that kind of swung back and forth. And I, I think that that's a way in many ways, kind of instinctively, we as Christians um, engage culture as we see something and we overcorrect. And when we overcorrect, we swing to the other extreme. And that kind of balance that Christ is calling us to is but speaking both truth and grace. And then, as you rightfully said, uh, there were some good elements that came out of the idea of like kind of purity culture in the sense of, but in many ways, th- certain things were overemphasized, especially an underemphasis on grace um, and mercy and restoration through Christ. One of the things I wanted to do is kind of, especially in light of the way that our culture talks about sexuality, um, and I often hear from outside the church uh, that you Christians are just obsessed with sex. That's all you want to talk about. Ironically, it's what we all talk about all the time. It's what our culture in many ways is fixated on. But what is God's good design for sexuality? Uh, what does the Bible actually speak to the nature of biblical sexuality, biblical sexual ethics, and what does that look like in the life of a Christian? Yeah, and I tell people that God's design in the scriptures for human sexuality is as clear and plain as any other important doctrine that's out there. I mean, what God says about marriage and sex is as clear as Jesus walking on water. So I, I think a lot of the pushback uh, towards God's design we see today, even among Christians, uh, it's not about really the Bible. It's more just about rebellion and stubbornness and saying, God, I think there's more to be gained by disobeying you than there is to be gained by obeying you. I got to go around you for the things I'm looking for rather than right to you. Uh, because again, you just can't explain it away in the scriptures. People try to, and they've tried for generations but as clear as can be, and that is that God has made marriage uh, to be between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. They were to come together to become one flesh. Uh, that's more than sex, but it's definitely not less. And then you see that Genesis story, that creation narrative, you see it echoed throughout the storyline of the Bible. When Jesus is asked about marriage in Matthew 19, he references Genesis 
as a historic event, you know, Adam and Eve as real people, this as God's design. When Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about their sexual sin, what he does is he says, don't you know? And then he goes back to Genesis. He says, the one who created them in the beginning, he said they made them, he made them male and female, so they, when they come together, they're going to be one flesh. So what he's telling them is, when you lie with that prostitute, which was the sin happening in 1 Corinthians 6, you're becoming one flesh with that person. As in, you're taking God's design and placing it in a context that he did not intend for it to be, and you're really actually doing permanent things with temporary people. He hasn't gone to a lecture with them about prostitution. He hasn't gone to a lecture about them about pagan temple worship. Instead, he points them to God's purpose, which is the one flesh union reserved for a man and a woman who are husband and wife and are married. Uh, and then in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, when Paul's talking about marriage and the church, he points to Genesis as a historic event and quotes the passage about man and woman coming together, becoming one flesh. And then he uses that to show us the relationship between Christ and the church, that union, that the visible portrait of a man and woman together as married, that one fleshness gives us an understanding of the invisible reality of the relationship between Christ and the church. The doctrine is called union with Christ. And the institution of marriage actually points us to our union with Christ. So it's fair to say, and I think appropriate and right to say, that when God created marriage, he already had the gospel in mind. Because this would be the actual portrait he would give us to point us to the ultimate marriage of Christ in the church. So when people make claims like marriage is a gospel issue, uh, they're not being extreme. Uh, they're not getting the wording wrong. It truly is because marriage is the institution that helps us to understand the oneness we have with Christ uh, through his death and resurrection. So uh, I, this is a really big deal. And it's again, it's not just an isolated verse. If it was an isolated verse, we should still pay attention to it. Every word of scripture is inspired by God. You don't have to have, have, to have 10 backup verses for it to be reliable and authoritative and true. But how even more significant for us to see, it's an actual storyline that goes throughout the story of the scriptures, throughout the narrative of the Bible. Uh, so it's also a biblical theology issue, not just a gospel issue. Uh, so that's God's design for us, a man and woman uh, who are one flesh, again, more than, it's more than sex, but not less, and a lifelong union uh, to project to the rest of the world the, the union between Christ and the church. This, this stuff really matters a whole lot. So anything outside of that, if it's multiple partners, if it's homosexuality. Uh, this is really an assault upon uh, what God has designed and what God has made. Yeah, that's one of the beautiful things that I love about your work um, and your the work that you do, especially this book, um, because you talk about the beauty, you kind of talk about the nature of God's good design for sexuality, and then you go through a host of issues. And obviously, we could spend a podcast or two just diving into each of these. Uh, but one of them that I, I wanted to talk about was the rise of and kind of use and almost ubiquity of pornography, even within the church. I think often that's one of those issues that kind of slides by that we'll address maybe once a year or in youth group every once in a while. Um, maybe we talk about it, in, especially in men's small group, not that this just is isolated to men, uh, but we often talk about it in small groups, but we kind of are really quiet about it in many ways because so many people are struggling with it or have had a history of pornography. Um, but it's one of those, it's a very important issue. I mean, it's obviously an affront to God's good design for our sexuality. Can you speak to a little bit about the use of pornography within the church and why this is so damaging to the church? Well, one, it's an addiction issue that you can have in front of you any moment you want. You don't have to actually get in the car and drive to the liquor store, right? You don't have to actually do that. Like if someone is an alcoholic, they have to actually make an effort to go and get alcohol. Uh, and this addiction is it's in front of you and at your fingertips anytime you want it because you have a phone. 
or you have a laptop or you have an iPad. And, and I think we really need to get very serious about what this actually is. If Jesus wasn't exaggerating, but I don't think he was, when he said that you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But if you look after a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. We need to see this as a form of adultery. Is it the exact same thing as physically with another person, uh, you know, cheating on your spouse? I'm not going to go that far. However, this, Jesus said it's adultery of the heart, which is very serious. If you talk to a spouse, man or woman, whose spouse has become involved in pornography, every time in my pastoral counseling situations, that's how they feel as if they were cheated on, for lack of a better way to put it, or committed adultery against. Uh, so I think we have to really understand and see it that way. And I think as churches, we have to be willing to talk about it. Uh, it seems that, that men, I know there's, women deal with it too, but for men, it really is a prevalent issue. So I think it needs to be part of our men's ministry conversations, part of our uh, small group conversations. And we can't see issues of sexuality, pornography, uh, hookup culture, adultery, we cannot see these things as taboo topics, as special meeting kind of conversations. Yes, there's a way to be appropriate with it in terms of mixed company, in terms of maybe an audience that's too young, uh, that's at some kind of gathering. But we have to make sure we talk about it because now it's getting younger and younger. You were seeing how many kids have iPhones now? These kids are so savvy. They can get around filters and they can do uh, they, they can access it in different kinds of ways. I'm not very savvy. I don't even understand how all that works. Uh, but I know people tell me, I said, well, do you have filters on your phone? They're like, yeah, but I can get around this. I'm not, I'm not saying to get rid of the filters, but I'm saying that even that's not enough any, anymore. So I think we have to take it head on. And I think also we have to offer environments of grace where people can confess and go through a process of having a mentor, a accountability partner, a conversation where they actually can feel safe to have the conversation. Because confessing something like that, yeah, it's embarrassing. It yet can have real serious consequences. And people do make those confessions. I think we need to be ready not to condemn them, but to walk with them and, and to really help them through in compassion. For many, it really is an addiction. Uh, for others, it's just a sinful rush. You know, it's a sinful activity. Uh, and addiction, it's sin as well, obviously. They're involved in pornography. But for others, they really feel like they're trapped and they don't know how to get help. Because there's almost a there's basically an encouragement to go to AA, right? People will say things like, hey, I'm proud of you for, I know you had that alcohol addiction. I'm so proud of you for taking those steps for your family, for your own life. And you know, people will celebrate that, right? We'll kind of have a, people do interventions and they'll, they'll just really tell someone how much they're proud of them. But when it comes to prong, if you don't hear that very often, it's just still more like, a, oh gosh, you're one of those kind of people. And you're the, when really there's a whole lot of those kind of people. So I think we need to take a similar approach with that, where we actually not encourage people in their sin or celebrate sin, but give a real thumbs up figuratively and literally towards someone who's willing to go forward with it and get the help they need from their local churches. And I think that we have to take the stigma away in terms of you're a freak, you're a weirdo, but actually see it as a struggling brother or sister uh, who needs us to walk with them. But for those who are struggling with it, you have to declare war on this. But the scriptures say flee from sexual immorality. So I think we can conclude you're not following Jesus if you're not fleeing from sexual immorality. It's a major component of what it means to follow Christ. I mean, how much the letters of the New Testament are geared towards that, towards fleeing sexual immorality. Uh, so I want to encourage people that are in that world right now, maybe are, are have an addiction or they just go to a pornographic website from time to time or lustful thoughts when they're alone, whatever it could be. You declare war on that stuff and see yourself as fleeing sexual morality and do whatever it takes to do that. We can't nuance that. We can't dance around it. Like you've got to flee from sexual morality and repent of that sin. And it's a try. I hope you have brothers and sisters in your life that you can turn to who will walk with you in doing that. And chances are they have something they struggle with too. 
It might not be pornography, but it could be something else. It could be a love of money. It could be a gambling addiction. It, it might be pornography. You know, there, there could be so many different things. And uh, I think that we need to be see ourselves as family as churches. I'm not saying the entire church has to know, but some trusted people, an elder, a good friend, a small group leader, whoever it could be, a pastor that can walk with you through this. Yeah, I think that's a really important aspect because I think often sexuality in our culture has become a very individualistic thing. We say we define our own realities. It's all about what we feel on the inside, these desires and preferences. But in the same way, we often operate in very similar kind of constructs within the church. Uh, we say, you know, this is, it's a personal issue. We feel very alone and isolated. And one of the ways we overcome that and one of the ways we proclaim God's good design for sexuality is together in community as the church, doing this and being open about our sins, being open about the lavish grace that's been poured upon us in Christ Jesus. And I think a lot of Christians, when they think about sexuality issues, they're wondering, there's a lot of questions surrounding. I mean, right now we're recording this in June. Uh, this is Pride Month. Uh, it's very kind of out loud and proud about LGBTQ plus issues and things. And I think a lot of Christians are wondering not so much about God's design for biblical sexuality, but how do we navigate a lot of these big pressing questions that our neighbors are asking us or the culture is asking about the nature of sexuality and stuff? I wanted to see if you can help us think pastorally about how to navigate some of these LGBTQ plus issues in light of the biblical ethic, in light of how God's created us in his image. Yeah, first and foremost, and this might not be the most popular answer in our climate we find ourselves in, especially in June, is if we got to hold the line. I mean, truly, like we cannot compromise on this issue. Why? Because everything we talked about before then, that we talked about until up to this point, that God has a design. And notice we discussed God's design and barely even brought up homosexuality. But it was all in the context of God's glory and what God has made for his people, for his for his, our good, for the worship of him. And we're supposed to live in that. Uh, so that has to be said first. Like there, there's not nuance here when it comes to this issue. Uh, there's not what about, there's not disclaimer. I mean, truly God has a design and to step out of that design sexually in any way, shape or form is sin. It's sin. Uh, so if we, you, you lay with someone who is of the opposite sex, uh, uh, that is not your spouse. You know, you are someone who is in sin. If you uh, lie with someone who is uh, the same gender as you, the Bible is clear that that is sin. First and foremost, we have to call it what it is. We also have to be very mindful pastorally that people who aren't Christians aren't going to act like they are. I mean, I'm a Christian and still struggle every day with acting like I am. <laughs> and theologically, we believe they can't act like they are because they don't have the Holy Spirit. So I'm not, so my goal in trying to engage in any kind of ministry way is someone who has same-sex attraction or that is in a same-sex relationship is not to try to make them straight. Like That's not the goal. That, that's not the task. I want to show them Jesus. And show them who their need, and not just to repent of their homosexuality, but to repent of, repent of their sin in general. And they need to trust in Christ for their salvation. In the same way, when you're dealing with someone who has any other serious sins in their life, you know, you're not first asking them to get rid of all these sins and to agree with you on everything. You're first trying to show them their need for Jesus. And then guess what happens after that? Well, they're not actually going to trust in Christ. And it turns out the Bible calls us to unless they repent of their sins. And that is going to be a long road, right? If there's years of fleshly living and living for the world as your loyalty, and then you have a radical shift, yeah, God has made us new overnight, but there's still a lot of flesh still in us and a lot of life to work out through sanctification. Uh, so I, I think it's important to know our goal that, that heterosexuality is not the goal. Holiness is the goal. And we believe that what holiness looks like is to have a marriage by God's design when it comes to sexuality. 
And so I think that's really important. For the Christian, it's a different conversation. Uh, for a Christian who either struggles with same-sex attraction or is actually in a homosexual relationship, I think we need to speak clearly to both of those camps. The person who is now saying they're going to remain abstinent, they're going to live their lives pure, but they struggle with same-sex attraction, I, I think that we just need to be people who rally around those folks. Uh, we don't champion their desires. Uh, we don't let them identify as a gay Christian. I, I personally, I know some Christians can disagree on that, but I personally really struggle with that whole idea, this kind of whole gay Christian movement. I, I don't think we should identify by sinful desires. You know, I, I don't identify as a lustful heterosexual Christian, right? <laughs> those godless desires. Uh, so I think we have to help people who are admitting that they struggle with same-sex attraction. We have to invite them into the family, you know, let them know that we're not going to treat them different. We're not going to uh, make them feel like they're second class or JV or weird or have a stigma. They're going to be part of the family as someone who's confessed to the church. They have a certain struggle that is deeply personal, you know, that the world is celebrating. The world is offering them the opposite messaging, telling them you can't be yourself unless you act out your desires. That's the world's message. That's not the Lord's message. Uh, the Lord's message is if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Uh, so, And then for the Christian who professes Christ and is involved in a homosexual relationship, I think we call those people to repentance, you know, in the same way we would a heterosexual couple who is involved in sexual sin, uh, that we're consistent there and we do that. And we, we really call them to repentance. We don't apologize. Uh, we take it seriously as a church when we have members that are that way. And, and I just think that we have to take those kind of things really seriously. Uh, but I think it begins first and foremost by being unapologetic that God has a design. Jason, we have gotten so soft and weak in that area. And I'm not some kind of Theo bro, or I don't want to beat anybody over the head with my Bible. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about the, some of the meat and potatoes, Christianity 101 in other words, is the fact that God has made them male and female. So for us to back down on that, to be quiet on that, to give disclaimers, to be apologetic— is for us to really take what God has said lightly and let the culture and how we're viewed by people really determine the narrative rather than actually the scriptures. Again, I'm not saying we talk about it every week. I'm not saying we, you know, I'm not, it's not coming from a judgmental angle. It's coming from a clarity angle. We also understand that for an unbeliever, we're not really concerned with the fact they're in homosexuality. They're going to give an account to God for all kinds of sins in their life. We want them to show them Jesus and, and then trust the Lord to change their heart and commit to discipleship if and if God does save them by his grace. For the Christian, the professing Christian, it's a different conversation. Yeah, and I think that's a really important way to approach it because I think there's kind of those two ditches. We can say, well, we're truth Christians. We're just going to speak the truth, or we're just going to be grace Christians, and we're going to kind of capitulate on certain things because we want to love people. But we see this balance of truth and grace throughout the Scripture, throughout the life of Jesus. And that's one of the ways I love that you talk about it, is we're unapologetic about the biblical sexual ethic, God's good design, because of the many realities we've already spoken of. But at the same time, you're saying, I'm not trying to make you straight. I'm actually trying to lead you to Jesus. And I think that kind of focus and reminding about the gospel message, but also the dignity of the person that you're engaging with. They're created in the very image of God, just like we are. And so shifting that tone is not that we take, you know, beating people over the head with our Bibles per se, but we are speaking truth unapologetically, but we're also doing so in such a, a graceful way, not capitulating on truth. Uh, but at the same time, not just accepting people as they are, is calling them to Jesus, calling them to holiness. And I think you do a really good job of balancing that. Not that these things are intention by any means, but kind of ma uh, modeling what a biblical sexual ethic and engaging cultural these really tough cultural issues look like. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm really grateful to have you on the podcast, specifically talking about this book. 
One of the questions I wanted to shift because a lot of the work that you all do at City Church is engaging with college students and kind of the next generation. Um, you do a lot of ministry on college campuses in the area. And I wanted to say, I know a lot of times us that are, maybe for some of us that are a little older, we feel obviously the cultural pressure and things like that. What is maybe about the next generation that may be unique or some of the questions that they're asking that may have shifted over recent years that you've seen throughout your ministry? Yeah, well, one, I think they're dealing with a new reality that sex is expected. What used to be the first kiss is now sleeping together. We're almost to agree to go on a date with someone is to agree to sleep with them, if not the first date, the second date. Uh, such as the world they've entered into. Uh, so that's why I, I just, for Christians to date other Christians is not only biblical, most importantly, but it's critical <laughs> you know, right now uh, for people to have the same ethic as you, that you do concerning God's design. So for those who are younger who are listening to this, please uh, don't even tempt with dating someone who's not a believer. Uh, because I'm not saying that two Christians are exempt from these temptations, but hopefully at least the expectation's not there. I'm going to assume the best, right? That, that at least the expectation of going into a date is not, oh, we're going to sleep together tonight uh, That as the world's expectation. The other one is they're dealing with a world where marriage is now seen as a capstone rather than a cornerstone, meaning rather than marriage being something you build your life from, now it's something that you just kind of tack on at the end once you've accomplished all the things you want to accomplish in your early life. So once you get all your degrees, save enough money, backpack Europe, you know, accomplish your bucket list and live on your own for a while, then live together for a little while to make sure you're compatible with the things the world tells us. Then after all of those things take place, then if you really want to get married. So that's the world they're going into as well, where a lot of people just aren't interested in marriage uh, when it comes to their, their dating lives, which for Christians, a pretty unique period uh, for them to live in. Uh, also, we're seeing, this is an encouraging thing that a lot of our Christian students that we have in our church are, are, have realized that they can't be like in the murky middle when it comes to sexuality issues, uh, that there's there's no place for that. You really have to make a declaration. Like you're going to get put on the spot about what you believe about certain things. And we're seeing them really stand strong in these areas uh, in terms of sexuality and purity and, and, and valuing marriage in a world that really doesn't very much anymore. So so I, that's some of the encouraging things we're seeing our Christian college students with real conviction. You know, and young adults with real conviction, they're trying to do it the right way uh, because they love God and they love others. So, so I'm really actually encouraged by the next generation when it comes to you. It's hard for them uh, because, especially on the homosexuality issue, it's hard for them because they have friends and siblings and cousins that, who, who, are, who are gay. You know, where a lot of the generation before them did not have that because they didn't know. Maybe their friends were secretly gay, whatever it could have been. It wasn't a very common thing. 30 years ago to have a lot of gay friends. So it can almost be like theoretical, like, oh yeah, well, you know, homosexuality is sinful and that's what I believe. Well, now there are people in their life that are saying things to them like, are you saying, you want me to, to suppress my desires? Or are you saying that, that God doesn't love me? Are you saying I'm not good enough? Are you saying you don't support me? You know, are you trying to be lonely the rest of my life? Like those kind of questions are having to face when other generations didn't really have to. So to really make a stand for the gospel uh, is going to not be, I would say at odds with rejecting their friends, it's going to really have to come with the way of Jesus, uh, of the truth and grace, the love and truth thing that you were talking about, where they're going to stand for the truth, but at the same time, really try to figure out how they can still be in relationship and love people uh, who some, on some days think they're complete bigots because of what they believe. And then also to exist in a world where they're viewed as these kind of sexual prudes simply because they want to live by God's design. So it's really, I, I just want to give them, a lot of grace because it's not easy right now to, to be standing up for the things that God's clear on in this world at their age, uh, where it's a lot easier for me, you know, living in the suburbs and kind of live my life, my family and 
Uh, for them, it's complicated. So I really try to encourage them, but also equip them. And, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I, I wrote the book Pure really for, uh, I, I joke that it's sexual ethics for normal people. You know, it's not, it's not an academic book. It's not a scholarly work. Uh, that, that, that's not really who I am. I mean, I can do it if I have to, uh, but that's not, I, I just talk to regular people, you know, in regular places about things that really matter in the scriptures and how they can apply it to their lives. And, and I hope the book can do that for people. I know one of the areas that um, I was really interested in, and my wife and I have had a lot of conversations. We have a five-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, and the entertainment choices, the things that they're being exposed to, whether it's on their iPad or whether it's on TV or even in school early on, we're having a lot of questions about the nature of conversations of sexuality happening uh, very, very, very early in some places um, and how to tr- kind of raise up the next generation. I know you have three kids. Uh, obviously, this is a conversation you all have in your family as well. What are some encouragements that you would have for parents, especially Christian parents who are raising up families in the midst of a very sexualized culture, um, kind of over-sexualized culture? What are some ways that you would encourage or challenge parents as they raise up the next generation? Well, I think it begins, at least with my boys, it begins with teaching a high respect for women. Like we really do believe that men and women are different, that God has made them different, and that there's certain ways as someone is trying to love others that we're not going to talk, we're not going to talk to women in a certain way. We're not going to talk about women in a certain way. Uh, how they treat their mom is a really big deal in our house. How they treat their sister is a really big deal in our house. Uh, so you just regularly, you can ask my boys, what's the number one rule in our house? And they'll say, we have to respect my mom. And that matters in our house. So I, I want to elevate for them a very high view of women. I, th- I think that is part of the war against pornography. You know, I think that uh, if we are, by God's grace, successful in creating that culture in our house where my boys have a high respect for women, I hope it affects their dating lives. And I hope it, it affects the way that they treat their girlfriend physically when they're tempted or what they attempt to, to engage in uh, because of a high level of respect for a fellow image bearer, a fellow sister in Christ, but also someone who is different than they are, that God has made different than they are. Uh, so that's, that's really, I mean, I'm not trying to simplify. That's really the biggie for us. That's not talked about enough. Especially in this kind of egalitarian world we're in, where that's almost viewed as trying to say that women are weaker. And you know, it's like, well, God, God has made us different, and we're not going to apologize for that. So, so my, I also want my daughter, who's younger than them, to also see that. I'll tell them regularly. They're just like short with her, disrespectful towards her, or even physical with her. Like siblings can be sometimes. You like push her down. They get you know. I, I always say, guys, I say how she is going to view how she is to be treated by men based on her relationship with you. Because right now, me and your grandpa and her uncles and you two are like the men in her life when she's this young, besides a friend in second grade or whatever, right? Like, that's not a man, it's a little boy. Like, But we're, like we are the ones that are shaping for her how she is going to think men are supposed to treat her. I said, so we're going to have a really high bar for how your sister's treated in this house because guess what? When some guy comes to pick her up and take her on a date one day, that's going to be her expectation. It was how my brothers treat me, how my dad treats me. So that's really where it begins for us. Uh, And then after that, just talking about it a lot, about just the temptations that are out there, what not to look at, um, why we shouldn't look at, not just the don't, but the why, how these things just aren't what God has designed our eyes to look at uh, in terms of things. Um, Expectations on screens. They both have phones. I mean, they're they're in a world right now where we've made the choice to have phones. Like all their friends have phones. We want them to be socially engaged. We want them to be a part of everything happening at school. I always think the social side of things really matters, but in that, not the sake of losing their souls. Uh, so we are just, we usually talk about those kind of things and, and make sure that we're regularly having conversations about what they should and should not be looking at. And they know that if they, you know, 
were looking at something they shouldn't have been looking at, sent a message they shouldn't have sent. There's going to be they're going to have to pay the piper, you know, when it comes out. Which I mean, losing their phones, you know, major restrictions, those kind of things. So, but the biggest thing for us though is elevating early on that understanding of their responsibility as men, and then for my my daughter of understanding what her expectations should be and how she's treated uh, by by men and you know by boys. And so that, that's again, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but for us, that is kind of the bread and butter in our house. Well, obviously, we've talked about so much today on the podcast. There's so many issues, different topics. Uh, for folks who want to dig in on some of those issues, whether it's the biblical sexual ethic, whether it's kind of the storyline of scripture, or whether it's kind of diving into engaging kind of Christian culture or even culture outside the church, what are some resources uh, that you would recommend folks? We'll list all of these in the show notes for folks to grab. Um, but any books or resources that you find particularly helpful and useful in this? Um, I think for the marriage book, I think Tim and Kathy Keller's book, Being a Marriage, is really good. Kevin DeYoung's book on what the Bible says about homosexuality. Anything by Kevin on concerning issues of sexuality is really great. Uh, and then uh, Andrew Walker, our mutual friends, a book on God and the transgender debate, I think is a really helpful work as well. Yeah, and those are some things that come to mind that that would be definitely picking up if I want to have more. And then you mentioned Carl Truman's book earlier. I think in terms of capturing the moment that we're in, I think that's a really helpful book as well. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I'm glad you mentioned Andrew's book, uh, God and the Transgender Debate, and we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes for listeners. Uh, that book is really helpful. Not only it's in its second edition now, um, so, but it also has an appendix asking kind of a lot of the questions that people are wondering about. And he provides really biblical and very pastoral answers. Uh, really grateful for that work. And we'll make sure to link to the webinar that we recently hosted that you were part of, Dean. We had Andrew Walker as well as Katie McCoy join us to talk about discipling our church in the midst of a sexual crisis. And we'll make sure to link to that webinar as well uh, in the show notes, along with a lot of those resources you mentioned. But Dean, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today um, and really grateful for your ministry. Yeah, thanks so much, Jason. I appreciate you being able to talk about these topics. From all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dean and learn more about his work, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues in the public square today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.